Well, good morning. It is indeed good to be with you here this morning. And for those who can't be with us in person or are joining us online, we welcome you as well. We do wish you were here with us. We miss you. We do look forward to the day when we're all back together, fellowshipping together and worshiping the Lord together. Uh, that day is not today, but uh, hopefully soon. Well, we've come to that time in our worship service where we open the Word of God and we are taught from the Word of God. Uh, if you have your copy of God's Word with you this morning, please open it up to Acts chapter 13. And today we're going to be in part two of a series on missions. Before we begin, though, let me uh, open us up in prayer. Father, I thank you for the blessing of meeting to sing your praise, to open your word. Reach out to touch your people. Let us hear you speak through your word this morning. As we come to your precious word, O Lord, we ask for wisdom and understanding. Open our eyes that we may behold the wondrous things out of your law. Unfold for us the mission you have given to your people and help us to see and to embrace the truths you have set forth. And may it fill us with great joy. Bless us now as you speak to us. And Lord, I pray you will use your servant, though frail, weak, and greatly flawed, to declare your truths from your word. Let me speak love and truth for your name's sake. Amen. My name is Rich Kasky. I'm one of the elders here at Christ Community Bible Church. And uh, we are very glad you're here. And like I said, we are going to be in the book of Acts this morning. This is part two of a, a little series on missions. And last week, last Sunday, Jared started this series for us. And he took us to John chapter 17, the high priestly prayer of Christ. And there he showed us the global mission that God has given to the church. Jesus prayed that night for the apostles who had been given to him by the Father. And he prayed that the Father would preserve them and sanctify them. Jesus asked the Father to preserve their faith, to preserve their gospel message. He did not ask the Father to preserve their possessions, their reputations, their livelihoods, or even their lives. Preserve their message. He said, sanctify them in the truth and your word is truth. And then something even more amazing. When Christ had finished praying for the apostles, he prayed for us. Jesus prayed for all who would believe because of the apostles' message. And that is us. That includes the very first converts. If you go back to the day of Pentecost and the sermon of Peter, all the way through today and in the future, he prayed for us. And all believers across all time are part of this mission. And as Jared said last Sunday, if you are saved, you have been sent on this mission. It's not optional. You can't opt out of it. There is no alternative path. We are all part of this mission. And what is that mission? It is to put the supremacy of Christ on display for the whole world to see. This morning, we want to continue in missions and develop our understanding of missions. We're going to see in this text this morning examples for churches to follow. We're going to see some of the most basic tenets and principles for a missions program. And not only are these missions, uh, these principles applicable to modern churches today, they're fundamental. They apply to small congregations such as us at Christ Community Bible Church, and they apply to the mega churches around the world. And not to give the punchline away at the very beginning, but today we are going to look at the centrality of the local church in missions. That's us. That's Christ Community Bible Church. Today we are going to see some principles that guide our role in this great cosmic drama of redemption. 
Does that sound daunting to you? Does that sound too big? Does that sound impossible? Well, it is impossible for us. A couple of years ago, I was giving a presentation. I gave a presentation at work to about 200 engineers in a, in a large auditorium. And uh, I work as an aerospace engineer, and, and though I guess I struggle to embrace it, I'm actually one of the more senior engineers there uh, where I work. But anyway, on that day, uh, I gave a, an hour-long presentation to this group of engineers. And my, my task there was to uh, point out specific engineering challenges that we face. And at the end of the hour, we had 30 minutes for questions. Now, in that, in that mix was, a, was a, a, in that, uh, in the auditorium was a mix of young and old engineers. And, and I mean the more experienced engineers and, and then uh, uh, at least one of the young engineers apparently was listening and a bit taken back by what I had said and these challenges that I had outlined. And I received a number of questions before she raised her hand. And again, she's thinking about these great challenges that we have to face as engineers. And she finally just raised her hand and she said, what are we doing about it? What's our solution? And I paused for dramatic effect. And then I looked at her and I said, we hired you. You're the solution. And that's true, by the way. Where I work, we hire engineers to solve problems. But you can imagine how daunting that seemed to her, that these challenges, she had ownership of it. Well, we look at the global mission that Christ has given to his church, and we're part of that. We can't say no. It is daunting. It's impossible for us. But also, we have an invincible God. So it will happen. As Jared pointed out last week, we are on the winning side for this. So if that mission doesn't sound daunting to you, then we need to refine our theology of missions. We need to immerse ourselves in the word of God to see God's great plan of salvation unfold and the grave consequences for sin and then to see our role in this drama of redemption. I like what Jared said last night. I like a lot of what he said, but I'm going to point out a few things here. He said, you know that you have your theology of missions right when you begin to hear the screams of the damned. How's your theology of missions? Do you see how serious this is? There are eternal souls on the line. And we, though a small congregation, have not been given some small, some unimportant make-work task for the global cause of Christ. We are called to reach the lost and to reach the perishing. And from the text this morning, we're going to look at three principles for missions, three foundational truths that should guide our missions program here at Christ Community Bible Church and should guide us individually what we do. Now, before I read the text, and I know this is a long introduction, let me give you a little background of the text. We're in chapter 13 of Acts. I'd like to set the stage for that. The events described here in these first five verses occur approximately 13 years, rough guess, after the death, resurrection, and ascension of, of Jesus Christ. These events trace themselves back to the Great Commission in Matthew 28 to go and make disciples and the charge to the disciples at Christ's ascension. Recorded in Acts chapter 1, Jesus told the disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And after that, the recorded activities of the church were focused primarily in Jerusalem, although we know that there were many from across the Mediterranean world who heard Peter's sermon on that day of Pentecost. About two years after that, Stephen would be listed as the first martyr for the faith. 
Acts chapter 7 describes those events. And from that time, there was a great persecution of Christians in Jerusalem. And believers fled to Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles. Acts chapter 11 tells us and amplifies that and says what happened uh, that some believers fled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. And while in most places, outreach from the believers was to the Jews living in those cities, outreach to non-Jews, the Greeks, the Hellenists, began in Antioch. In Acts chapter 8, we are told some of the great persecution of the Christians and its most notorious villain, a man named Saul. And chapter 9 describes an event so amazing. Saul would recount it several times. In chapter 9, we read about the miraculous conversion of Saul. He is along the road, a bright light blinds him, and he hears Christ speak to him. In one of his recounting, in chapter 26 of Acts, he tells us that at this conversion, God also gave him a calling and told him he was going to be sent to the Gentiles to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in Christ. So Saul, who would later become the apostle Paul, at his very conversion, is given a commission that you are going to go to the Gentiles. And over the following 10 years, Saul would spend time in Damascus and Arabia and Syria. He had to flee to Tarsus when there were people who sought to kill him. Then he was sought out in Tarsus and he went to Antioch and ministered there with Barnabas. He visited the apostles twice in Jerusalem. The second time he brought them famine relief funds from the church in Antioch. And that brings us to chapter 13. It says, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a member of the court of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, And from there, they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they had John to assist them. The first principle for missions is the centrality of the local church. Missions begins in the local church and it ends with the creation of a local church. Just as we have spoken about a discipleship program here that makes disciples who make disciples, so the mission of the local church is to make more local churches. The word church is what the Holy Spirit chose to describe this new covenant believers. It's the body of Christ. It's the bride of Christ. We are those who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, sealed with the Holy Spirit. It's the people of God the local people who assemble and profess faith and allegiance in Christ. Revelation chapter 1 describes believers as those who've been freed from our sins by the blood and made a kingdom, priests to God. This is not only a lofty concept. The local church is the vessel that Christ has chosen to fulfill his mission. And if Christ has chosen us to fulfill his mission... The local church is sufficient to fulfill that mission. Though we are a small congregation, we are sufficient to fulfill that mission. We speak of blood-bought gifts. Those are gifts of the Spirit meant to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to maturity, 
to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. You see, we are equipped. The local church is sufficient to do this mission. This describes the local church. God the Father, through the blood of Christ and the working of the Holy Spirit, has equipped us to fulfill this mission. The local church is central to this mission. That means we are, and we need to see our role in that. Now, there is room for other ministries. There are seminaries that train people. There are parachurch organizations to assist the local church. But the local church is the central means God has chosen to fulfill the Great Commission. Therefore, we're responsible for raising up qualified, vetted, trained, equipped men and women to do the work of the Lord, which includes world missions. It's within the local church that men and women are trained in doctrine. This is where men learn to be godly husbands and fathers, and women learn to become godly wives and mothers. It's within the local church that men and women are discipled and where they learn how to disciple others. This is where we learn hospitality, evangelism, servant leadership, how to love one another and how to worship God. That happens in the local church. And just as all believers are part of the body of Christ, needing the local church and necessary to the local church, all believers are called to be part of the mission of the church. I wish I could tell you that we were all perfect and doing church perfectly, but we're not. We're all flawed. And as Jared frequently says, we are all spiritual cripples and beggars of grace. Yet, we are God's chosen instrument. Therefore, we must embrace the mission given to the church as our own. We are responsible. We are not called to just write checks for missionaries. We are called to be the fertile ground in which missionaries are seeded, watered, fed, matured, and eventually sent. This is part of Christ Community Bible Church's 20-year plan. We want not to just support missionaries. We want to be the ones growing them raising them up and sending them. That's our vision. And it must take place within the local church. The second principle for missions is prayerful leadership. And I would add a prayerful congregation to that as well. We see here in the text, it says, while they were worshiping, the Lord and fasting. Fasting is associated with prayer and the word for worshiping is associated with kind of the priestly duties, uh, priestly ministry. And for the church, that would be described in Acts chapter two and that includes prayer and, and ministry of the word. So they were involved in ministry and prayer and fasting. Now look at the quality and the giftedness of the men gathered in Antioch. There were prophets and teachers. And who were they? Who were those prophets and teachers? Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. By the way, that wasn't his given name. When he was born, his parents didn't go, I'm going to call you Barnabas. His given name was Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus. But the apostles called him Barnabas. Can you imagine being a person of such encouragement that the apostles name you son of encouragement. Barnabas was there. Luke tells us he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And there was Simeon, who was called Niger. Niger is the Latin word for black, so perhaps he was from Africa. There was Lucius of Cyrene, who we know little about, and Manian, who was a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. Most likely, he had either been an adopted brother or a close companion who was raised with Herod Agrippa, or Herod Antipas, I should say. And he grew up and he knew the king, and he had great influence, and 
you can imagine as Luke is writing the gospel and the, and the book of Acts, he had great access to some, some history of that family of Herod that he could write that. And then there was Saul, the rabbi. Those are the prophets and teachers in Antioch. And what are they doing? They are worshiping the Lord. They are ministering to the Lord and they're fasting. And notice, God had equipped this congregation for the ministry and moreover, to be successful in ministry. God had sovereignly placed the right people in Antioch to do his will and God had equipped them for the task. This is a good reminder for us. We are a small congregation, but we have been sovereignly placed here by the living God. We have been placed here in Arlington and given a mission. We are to be witnesses for Christ. We not only provide a place for local believers to meet and worship and fellowship together, but we're here to make an impact for Jesus. God has a purpose for us. The congregation in Antioch was committed to learning the will of God and seeking his guidance. So they spent time in the word of God, studying the word of God. They spent time praying and fasting together. Fasting is a mark of, of deep spiritual concern. When we fast, we set aside something that is necessary for life. We set aside food, which we need to live. And we say, no, God, there's something more important, and I'm going to bring that to you. When we fast, we concentrate on spiritual matters and other matters of great concern. Now, we do not force God's hand through fasting. Instead, we set aside other daily matters, including eating, to seek the Lord and his guidance and his care. And in verse 2, the word they, it says, while they were worshiping here, that they looks like it refers to the entire congregation. So the entire congregation at this church in Antioch is involved in these things. They're doing ministry, they're praying, and they're fasting now, notice uh, things about this local congregation. They were diligent and they were devoted. They were worshiping or ministering to the Lord. They were engaged in the work of ministry. They were busy doing what God called them to do. They were doing the mission Christ gave all of us to do. Now, they had greatness among them, notably Saul and Barnabas, but the people were doing the work of ministry. Many local churches today do not have an impact because they're not doing the work of ministry. Many churches think that it's up to the pastor to do the work of ministry. We're just going to sit in the pews and the paid professionals will do that. It'll be the pastors who go out and disciple. It'll be the pastors who go out and evangelize. It'll be the pastors who do this. That is not scriptural. We need to be about the work of ministry. The role of the elders is to equip the people for the work of the ministry. And if we cannot fulfill the great commission and reaching the world for Christ without hard work, it is hard work. It takes sacrifice. We have to give things up. We have to make decisions. I look at Acts chapter 17 what it says about Paul and Silas and other believers when they were in Thessalonica. The Jews in Thessalonica didn't like some of the things Paul and Silas were teaching, so they raised up a mob to go get them. So this mob went, but Paul and Silas had escaped. And the mob grabbed a man named Jason and some of the other brothers, and they dragged him before the authorities. Their accusation against them was this. These men have turned the world upside down. I wish that could be said of us, that we're having such an impact here in Arlington that we are turning the world upside down. But we cannot be lethargic. God blesses active churches. This is not the busyness, but doing the work that God has called us to do. The congregation in Antioch was also devoted. They were worshiping and fasting. Again, 
Fasting is an indication of our seriousness regarding a situation. And I imagine they were burdened for the lost and they wanted to see God move in their city. And this goes hand in hand with their diligence. They were ministering to the Lord and engaged in prayer, intense, gut-wrenching prayer. And this requires sacrifice. Not just the sacrifice of not eating, but of time. Furthermore, we should be doing this informed by the revealed word of God. We can know what the will of God is for us. and We must be on our knees pleading before the very throne of grace for God to act. And in doing this, it looks like this local church, this local congregation in Antioch may have been the first congregation to catch the vision for foreign missions. Now, I listened to a missionary speak on this passage And he said this, he said, the womb of missions is the prayers of the church. The vision for reaching the world was birthed in worship, prayer, and fasting. God can and he will use different means to spark the heart of a believer to missions. That could be through conferences or visiting missionaries or books, movies, sermons, and even a seminary or Christian college can do that. But his primary means of calling someone to missions is through prayer. Remember what our Lord Jesus said. Then he said to his disciples, that's Jesus speaking, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. So what are they to do? He says, therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. We must be a people of prayer if we are going to be a church of missions. We rely on God, the Holy Spirit, to do mighty things, to do great things, because we cannot do them on our own. We have to be a people of prayer. Our missions program must be saturated in prayer. We must develop prayer for leader, prayerful leadership and a prayerful congregation. This needs to happen among the elders and among the congregation. This needs to happen in small groups and in families. Individuals must cultivate a life of prayer on their own, always seeking the will of God and his guidance. We must be a people of prayer. The third principle of missions is to understand the high calling of the mission. When the, whole, when the congregation in Antioch prayed, the Holy Spirit answered them. And this, these verses show us the ownership, sacrifice, and the work of the mission. It says, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, They laid hands on them and sent them off. Notice who owns the mission. God owns the mission. The Holy Spirit said, set apart for me. God owns the mission. By the way, that's a command. The local church was to set them apart. And we're going to see later that they obeyed that command. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity who has and exercises his will. And his will was that they would set apart Saul and Barnabas for him. He makes it clear who owns the mission. This isn't our mission. Before Christ ascended, he didn't ask the disciples. He didn't say, so what do you all want to do now? No, he had a mission for the church. And he told them what that mission was. He made that mission clear and we do not own it. We just have the responsibility to do that, to do it. And this is the mission that was determined by the triune God before time began. Think about that. Get a sense of the cosmic scale of this thing. 
the God, creator God in Trinity, before time had determined this would be the means to reach the lost. God was going to use us. The Holy Spirit said that they were to be set apart for the work to which I have called them. The Holy Spirit, again, makes it clear, this is my work and I called them. So what's the role of the local church? To know the will of God and to do it. This command was not just given to Saul and Barnabas. It was given to the leaders of the local church. Then the leaders fasted and prayed again and laid their hands on them and sent them off. The Holy Spirit called Saul and Barnabas to do his work and commanded the local church to send them. These men were not self-appointed, but the Holy Spirit worked through the leadership of the local church. It was a full 10 years earlier that Saul was told he would be sent to reach the Gentiles, but he would not go until the Holy Spirit determined the time and the local church confirmed and sent him. So when we talk about the high calling of missions, it doesn't get any higher. What higher authority is there above God? This is a wonderful and marvelous thing because we cannot do it on our own. It's an insurmountable task for us. The mission belongs to God. We all must also see the great sacrifice required. This is a sacrifice not only for the missionaries, but for the sending church. The Holy Spirit chose the best out of Antioch. The mission is worthy of the best. Can you imagine the local church at Antioch when they lost Saul and the son of encouragement? That had to be a devastating blow. But for the sake of the mission... It required the best. Now imagine that in the sense of the body of Christ. It would be like cutting off an arm that you're going to lose. It would hurt. Now to be clear, the Lord provides the gifting the local church needs even when some are sent. The point is it would hurt. Imagine if we had the vision to raise up men and women from our congregation perhaps some who are children now and we're pouring into them now and we're training them up. And then one day, perhaps 20 years from now, we send them. That would hurt. As we raise up these godly men and women and we see them doing work in the church and they're ministering in the church, they're doing wonderful things. And then God says, no. The Holy Spirit says, no, send them. I've got work for them to do elsewhere. That would be costly. We could spend decades teaching and training them. We would have men and women devoted to teaching children in the church. Some may be called to disciple them when they're young men and young women. We would know them well. We would love them. We would watch the Lord mature them in the faith. They would grow in the knowledge of the Lord and his word. They would be ministering and leading in our own congregation we would be depending on them for so many things. Then we would be commanded to send them to help complete the mission in another land. And that will hurt. We would miss them and we would miss their ministry. But with a high calling of missions, we must send our best. The mission field demands it. We can only send people with the highest character who are of the highest quality and who are gifted with the highest ability. You see, the purpose of missions is to establish another local church. So we must send qualified men who will be elders and pastors in foreign lands and we must send godly men and women to assist them in their work. When Saul and Barnabas were sent... They were sent to proclaim the word of God. Then they would often establish churches in those locations. To do that, they had to train up men to be elders. They had to teach them the whole counsel of God. 
They had to teach them doctrine and how to identify and refute false teachers. They had to teach them how to rightly handle the Word of God so that they wouldn't become false teachers themselves and so that they could feed the flock with the Word of God. They had to teach them how to evangelize, how to be a good husband and father, how to do church discipline, how to teach and disciple others, and how to do all of this while growing and maturing personally. That's a daunting task, and we cannot send unqualified people to the mission field who are expected to do that if they're not already doing that here. They were doing the work of the pastor and an elder, and that means they must be qualified. They must be able to train up more elders. If a man is not qualified to do that work here, they're not qualified to do that overseas. Even more, if they're not doing that work here, they most likely won't do it there. So when we talk about missions, we're talking about planting more local churches that that will worship the Lord and eventually send people out to make more local churches. As John Piper said, missions exist because worship doesn't. Now, to be clear, there are others who are not pastor elders sent to participate in this mission, okay? I want to be clear on that. The end of verse 5 says this. It says that, and they had John to assist them. So we need Bible translators to give the word of God to people in their own languages. We need that. We need mature believers to come alongside the missionary elders to help them in the work of the ministry. But all of that is done in the context of the local church that is being established, being planted. But it requires that everybody we send must be of the highest quality. If a missionary is is working to establish a new local church, he doesn't need more immature believers creating more work for him. He needs qualified, godly men and women to assist him. So I am in no way nullifying the work that are done by some, whether it's a short-term missionary or Christians who go to teach agriculture and teach people how to cultivate the land or people who go and they teach how to develop communities with water projects. That's all necessary. Bible translators, evangelists, other people who are there to assist. The mission is proclaiming the word of God and all who are sent must be our best. So finally, what is our responsibility in this mission. What is the responsibility of the local church? Look again at verse 3, and it says, Then after fasting and praying, they laid hands on them and sent them off. The leaders were endorsing their work and obeying the Holy Spirit in setting them apart for the mission. In the Old Testament, a person offering a sacrifice would lay hands on the sacrifice and they would identify with it. Now the church was laying hands on Saul and Barnabas, on two of their own as they were being sent to the mission field. They were identifying with them and in a sense saying, we're going along with you. We're part of you in this. Well, the local church has a responsibility. Before we send people, we must be committed to raising up godly men and women, we can send. We must make certain that they are strong in the word. They must be prepared for the task before them. If we send someone and their doctrine begins to deviate from the truth, we must take responsibility for that. If marriages begin to fail, we must step in to help. If we identified with them through the laying on of hands and sent them, then we have ownership with them for that mission. So what do we learn from this text? Again, there are three principles of mission. The centrality of the local church, prayerful leadership and a prayerful congregation, and the high calling of missions and what that demands. The Elders of Christ Community Bible Church have laid out a 20-year plan that includes being a church that raises up and sends missionaries. We will take responsibility for this. Now, none of this, what I'm about to say, is an accusation or a hammer. It's an encouragement, an exhortation. Some people are, here are doing tremendous work and they put in long hours. 
Some of us struggle to know what to do and we just know that we're unfit to do it. I get it. Most of us are in between somewhere and this isn't meant to discourage you but to cast a fresh vision for what we can be doing. If you feel like you've only ever failed at these things, consider this a do-over. Make this day one that you can now be doing these things. So what does that look like? Here's some thoughts. Number one, we must be internally healthy as a church. That means, among other things, we must have a robust ministry of discipleship. We need to be making disciples who make disciples. We need church owners. By the way, that's how we describe membership here at Christ Community Bible Church. We are owners. And the owners need to be involved in the work of the ministry. You see, every believer has been given a blood-bought gift of the Spirit. And it's for the edification of the church. If you are not involved in a ministry of the church and exercising your gift, we all suffer. So you can ask yourself, what, what, what can I do to make certain that we are a healthy church? We also need strong families. We need godly husbands, wives, fathers, and mothers. And that means we need older more mature saints among us to be discipling the younger families, teaching them how to do these things. We have young men who want to be discipled. We need our older women to be discipling our younger women. We need to be helping our families raise godly children. Yes, this is the parent's primary responsibility, but we have many here who are gifted to teach children and youth. Put work into your preparation. See it for what it is, preparing the next generation to do the mission of God and love them. Open the word of God with them. Pray with them and pray for them. Take ownership of the mission and the missionaries. See how your role fits into the greater mission of the church and do not grow weary doing the work. It is work but it's also a labor of love. Love for our master and love for one another. And let's be a people of prayer. We cannot rely on our own strength or skill. We will fail. It's an impossible task. This is God's mission and we cannot do anything apart from him. I will confess to you, I'm not the great prayer warrior that I want to be. I struggle with prayer every day. Perhaps you feel the same way. Here's some thoughts to help you in your own prayer life. Read scripture and pray back what you read. Look, we we all want to be in the word of God every day. We all want to be reading the scripture every day. It's through his word. It's through scripture. That's how God speaks to us. And that's great. But use his word to speak back to him. God doesn't consider it plagiarism when we pray scripture back to him. If you read a verse or a paragraph and you don't know how to pray it back to him, read the next one or the one after that until you find one you can. Use the Psalms and you'll see that you can do that. Be devoted to a robust prayer life. This is one of those conscious decisions we must make. I've said this before from up here. Don't try to find time to pray. Make time to pray. So what are you going to give up to have more prayer time? Let's, give, let's start with one that's probably easy. Can you give up 30 minutes of television or time in front of a smartphone? Can you occasionally skip a meal to pray? Can you give up 30 minutes of sleep to pray? Add fasting to your spiritual disciplines. Try it. Choose a day and fast that day. And oh yeah, we don't want to see a bunch of gloomy faces out there so that we know that you've been fasting. We want you to to fast and pray and do it for the Lord. Get a prayer partner that will hold you accountable. 
By the way, if you have a prayer partner and one day you say to them, you share with them, you said, well, yeah, I've, not been, I've not been praying, I've not been doing well. And they say back to you, oh, that's okay, I've not been doing well either. Get a new prayer partner, all right? You need to hold each other accountable. And so uh, don't find somebody who's going to make it easy for you to be lax in this. And finally, what do we do about the high calling of missions? How does that apply to us? Again, here are some thoughts. This must be a church-wide understanding of the mission. Some will actually go and be sent, but everybody is called to this mission. And if you feel like you've been called to the mission field, share that with the elders and begin or continue to do the hard work of preparation. As elders pray about who to send, it'll be clear that people not doing the hard work now are not ready. And I want to share an example with you from history on missions. Some of you may have heard of a, of a group called the Moravians. It was fun. I learned about the Moravians and what they did for missions. And then a few years later, I learned that I have some, I've actually descended from some Moravians who came over to the U.S. in the 1740s. So the Moravians were a people that, that actually were descended from followers of John Huss, one of the great reformers. And they ended up living on an estate of Ludwig von Zinzendorf. And by birth, he was a count, so Count von Zinzendorf there. And, and that was in the early 1700s. And from there, they would begin one of the greatest missionary movements in all of history. So they lived on this piece of land owned by Zinzendorf, and they named it Herrenhut, which means under the Lord's watch. And by about 1730, they had approximately 600 people, that's men, women, and children, living in this community. In 1731, Count Zinzendorf attended something in Copenhagen, and there he met a man. It was a black man who had been a slave in the Dutch West Indies. He was now free, and he'd become a believer. And this man was pleading, would people go and tell my, my fellow slaves about Christ. They need to hear about Christ. And Count Zinzendorf was moved by this. He hears this story and it affects him. He gets back to Herrenhut and he starts sharing this story with, with the people there. He says, hey, I met this guy. Wow. And there were three men, Leonard Dober and uh, David Nitschman and Tobias Leopold. And those men heard this and two of them said, I want to go. Leonard Dober and Tobias Leupold said, send me, I'll go. They actually met with this former slave and the former slave said, you know what you're getting into? You're basically going to have to live like a slave. You don't get to live in the big house because you, no one's going to hear your message otherwise. And after much prayer, um, Leonard Dober was chosen to go. David Nitschman, who was a carpenter, was going to be sent with him. He was going to go just to build a cabin or build a hut, get him going, get him started, then he was going to return back to Herrenhut. So in 1732, Leonard Dober was sent along with David Nitschman. And it was said of them, there were not two men in the world more fitted for the task. Each had a clear conception of the gospel. Each possessed the gift of ready speech. And each knew exactly what gospel to preach. And on August 8, 1732, there was an unforgettable service to send them off. And Luke, you would appreciate this because it is said that they sang 100 hymns at that service to send them off. Between 1732 and 1742, this community of 600 people, men, women, and children, sent 70 missionaries into the world. 
They sent them to Greenland, to Finland, to South Africa, Romania, Algeria, North America, and to the slaves living in the Dutch West Indies. Before the end of that century, before 1800, they would send more than 300 missionaries into the world. That's a local congregation. That's not a missions organization. By the way, the great John Wesley was converted when he was on a boat with Moravian missionaries heading overseas. The Moravians also were a people who bathed their ministry in prayer. In 1727, there was discord arising in the community. People weren't getting along. There were some things happening. So 24 men and 24 women committed to each other. And in pairs, they each took one hour of the day so that they could be praying around the clock 24 hours a day. This prayer movement lasted more than 100 years of constant prayer. Their entire ministry was bathed in prayer. And in this small local church who was fleeing violence in Europe, we saw the, the local church take responsibility for the mission. We saw faithful prayer more than 100 years. And we saw the high calling where they sent their best to the mission field. It's wonderful to see what God can do through a faithful local church. Let's pray. Holy Father, we are again confronted by the relevance of your word, its power and its clarity. We pray that you would give us a clear vision for missions. We, we acknowledge the mission is yours and is not our own. We are your servants, ready and eager to respond. Oh Lord, we pray, help us in our unpreparedness and lethargy. Make us a local church that you want us to be. Show us our part in fulfilling the Great Commission. Help us to grow strong so that we are raising up and sending missionaries from our own numbers. May we be strong in prayer that we will seek your will and hear your call when it comes. Father, by your spirit, enable us to live as you've called us to live. Help us all to choose this day to be committed to your ways of righteousness, to cling to your word, and to run the race you have set before us. We pray all of this through the Son and by the Spirit. Amen.